Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Bounty episode of the Day Zero podcast. I'm Spectre. With me is Z. Apologies. Some of you watching may have noticed there was no spot to vault this week. Uh, we were just a little bit late getting to that and uh, didn't didn't have time to put one together at the last minute. But uh, there yeah, will be I, one again next week. So, yeah, I kind of remembered I hadn't done a spot the vault yet when we joined the call to actually start the podcast. So a little bit late. Yeah. So. Yeah, like I said, we'll have one again next week for that. Yeah. Um, yeah, in this episode, we have a cool parsing bug detailed by uh, Maxwell Dullen, uh, some Facebook bugs, and some research on the challenges determining real IP addresses of clients, particularly when it comes to setups with uh, proxies. So, yeah, I guess we'll we'll get into some of our topics. So we'll start off with an RCE in uh, PFSense firewall in versions 2.5.2 and lower, uh, which is rooted in the allowance of arbitrary input into said. Um, which for those who haven't used it, it's it's stands for stream editor. Um, it's very useful for doing quick file edits from the command line and has its own syntax. Uh, it's basically like scriptable file editing. So you'll see it sometimes in like make files or build scripts um, whenever, like if you want to rewrite a comment for a version or something. Um, I've seen it used in some use cases like that. And it, it has a very powerful uh, syntax for allowing you to do those quick edits. Um, and while PFSense will ensure the user can't break out of the said command and do like command injection or something, um, and it's also using the BSD version, which doesn't have the exact argument or any of the really powerful arguments, um, but the user can pass arbitrary said syntax. Um, the input is encoded with HTML special chars, but that's not really sufficient for preventing taking advantage of things like the um, the match replace directive. So. By using the match replace directive as well as the the uh, right path directive, um, you can get an arbitrary string written to an arbitrary file. So, yeah, I mean that's a pretty powerful capability. Obviously, uh, just a case where set is super powerful and it you're given almost unrestricted access to it. So, I guess just a bit of a danger point that the developers weren't really aware of uh, or just didn't not... really think of when they were exposing uh, set in that way. Yeah, kind of just not thinking about it, because um, it is, like, they're obviously thinking about the escape aspect, like, being able to do arbitrary arguments, because they do use escape shell arg, they use that appropriately here, so you're not breaking out into another argument. So, there's some consideration of it, just not of what the internal features are of that software, and I think that's just something to keep in mind when you're looking at code, is... You know, just because you can't, in this case, you can't even escape out into an argument. Well, what can you do? And said is, in particular, very powerful because you are getting access to the, uh, basically the said commands themselves. So there is a lot you can do there. Um, just something to keep in mind, really. It's not that interesting of a bug. It is just like, you know, they can write their own arbitrary files because you can search and replace and specify where to write. But at the same time, usually when we see these sorts of command injections, it's something where they're breaking out of either the argument against arbitrary arguments or breaking out of the command itself and being able to run arbitrary commands, neither of which is possible in this case. So it is somewhat hardened, which makes it a little bit more interesting. The other thing that makes it a bit interesting is I don't think you're going to run into many target applications that are going to be exposing set in this way um, because it's 
it's a very weird tool to expose though pf sense is like a firewall so it, it kind of makes sense for their use case to want to leverage something like said for rewriting rules or whatever um but I mean, yeah it's, do it's not something it. that i think would be super common in a lot of setups um thinking about when i've seen it used it's not something like oh you know just supply your argument to said um but you will occasionally see user input being placed into that search and replace aspect of it um you know somebody's using search and replace inside of said and then you'll let user arguments go inside of either what's being searched for you know you can specify a field or what what it's actually being replaced with so i mean it is used at times to do um um at, at least i tend to see it being used with that regex search and replace so you can match like a line in the configuration file um and it's worth noting this is privileged off this isn't coming from somebody with like no access whatsoever they do need to be authenticated here i believe uh, so it is somewhat restricted and that is often going to be the case i think when you have things exposing said i usually have seen it used around uh, like I said, things like editing a configuration file or editing like the deployment information for another application. Um, Rudimal does ask in chat, I wonder why they escape special characters before escaping the shell args. Yeah, I I kind of took note of that and didn't actually look into why that was the case. So I don't I don't have an answer, but it is a good question. Yeah, so like you said, not a not a super complex bug. It's just the fact that um, they're exposing a powerful capability with with said, um, and that can be leveraged. That is a good point, though, with the authentication. I did uh, forget to mention that uh, when starting off the topic. So yeah, you do have to be authenticated. So the impact is mitigated a little bit there too. All right. So next we have a post by Maxwell Dolan um, that details testing and exploiting a previously reported. Uh, MySQL Node.js bug on his own blog site's authentication system. Um, so Z, I'll let you take this one away because uh, this is one that you spotted and found interesting. Yeah, so we were actually, turns out uh, we've read some similar blogs. So there is another blog post about a issue or a gang SQL injection using or against MySQL JS. Kind of comes down to the idea of permissive parsing, accepting objects when you actually want a string. But there is also a more fundamental issue going on here. So let's talk about the high level issue, which is uh, Node.js popular library. Here's MySQL JS for communicating with MySQL. And it exposes this query interface where you can provide something that looks like a prepared query. Using the question marks, providing username, password to kind of fill it in. The idea of a prepared query is you tell the SQL server, hey, I'm going to provide values for this later. It can, you know, compile the query, do whatever it does. And then you provide the values and like you can't break out of the whole SQL structure. Like it knows these are values you're providing and uh, kind of preventing SQL injection in that way. What they found here, though, is basically MySQL JS doesn't implement prepared queries. It implements this interface, but doesn't actually do proper prepared queries. So prepared queries are some that exist on like the server side. You can send it the commands to do that. Whereas MySQL JS, and in fairness, other libraries do this too. 
uh, what they'll do is they'll only be using the text uh, interface or API and providing just the text queries over. So they'll kind of generate this query on its own. And that's what happens with MySQL.js is it prepares the query and it will accept either objects or strings or integers, whatever. When it's provided an object, so the example here, um, you know, where it's doing this query, username equals question, password equals question. Uh, when it gets the username or the data username admin, it drops in the string exactly like you'd expect. But if a user can provide some that isn't a string, so in this case, a object, which just has, you know, password, um, uh, password as a field and just one as the uh, value it's looking for, it's actually going to translate that into a column lookup. So I think the idea of this is if, if instead of, um, you know, select star from accounts where username equals question, if you were to do something like where question mark, and then you were to provide this object, then it kind of makes sense. Because what it does, it turns this into uh, basically a backtick. Yeah, here's an example. It turns it into the backtick password equals one. Um, obviously, when you drop that in as a password equals password equals one, that kind of breaks the structure of the query. I think the intent there, like I mentioned, was to be able to drop it in there for like a more complex part of the query. So it's query, it's, it thinks it's filling in password equals one. Um, putting in this password equals password, that's basically always going to be a true statement, this first part of the, um, at least in this case, because the column's name is password, it's comparing a column with a column. No matter what column value you have there, that's always going to be true. One is a truthy value, so this all kind of ends up resolving to and true. So you can basically just provide whatever uh, username you want. To actually exploit this on Maxwell Dullin's blog here, um, what he ended up having is, well, passwords are hashed, so you can't really provide a object there. Thankfully, passwords were hashed. I mean, he has a security blog and content, so I, I, I would expect no less than that. Um, but he just applied this basically to the username, as long as the password hash existed somewhere in the database, which on a small blog like this actually might be a little bit of an ask for an attacker to take advantage of. I imagine he's not using admin admin as his credentials. Might be a little bit of an ask, but on another application, you could absolutely see somebody writing this query on just a much larger application, thinking they're using prepared st statements. As long as some user has that password, you can basically provide any username. Depending on how that authentication happens, it might grab the, might be looking at the first row to figure out the user or might use the user provided. Either way, it's going to match on some user and potentially think that the authentication was successful as was the case here. It's an interesting bug, and I I really want to put the blame here right on the MySQL.js library for exposing this sort of interface, making people think that they're using the secure prepared queries when they're really not. Um, it's kind of one of those insane by default type things where yeah, you wouldn't and really expect the library to be doing it like this. Yeah, most people don't. I mean, most people think if it's prepared, you're, you have this interface, it's definitely just prepared queries and don't realize that there is that separation where some libraries 
do kind of hack it into it. And some libraries have done this reasonably well. Um, the object aspect does make this a little bit more insane. And in fairness, there is kind of a default, that, or well, a configuration option you can set basically when you make the connection to indicate that it should stringify objects. Um, in which case it will always just turn it into a string and always kind of act how you expect. It's the fact that it also tries to be a little bit smart about dealing with the objects, but in this case, not smart enough. But I mean, the fact that you have some that looks so close to a prepared statement and isn't, I think is just really deceptive. And to anybody reviewing the code, I mean, you look at that, you see the query, it's like, oh, it's using prepared statements, so it's all good. You don't think about how those prepared statements are implemented. Like, it's just also deceptive code in that sense um, on the side of the MySQL library. And, you know, we said it a lot before, but that's one of the big responsibilities you have when you're rolling a library is the fact that it's intuitive and it doesn't really violate that law of least surprise. So, yeah, I would kind of agree there. I, I think the, the blame here mostly lies on the, the MySQL JS developers and not developers who are using the uh, the library because it, it almost seems really hard or impossible to use it in a way that is safe from this type of issue. You um, would do the stringify so, by default. So you set that as the default, which personally I would argue should be the default. Um, but you set it as the default for your connection as like a config in that connection. And right. then you wouldn't have this vulnerability. So like, you can use that. I will also call out that um, uh, this whole issue was actually raised before that it's not using like true server-side prepared statements. Um, was called out in looks like 2012, and still hasn't happened. Uh, Just a now the, bit ago. yeah, I mean there's a bit, there was some discussion back and forth over the risks of it and stuff, but ultimately it was some that was pointed out. And, yeah. It, it It is a fairly popular library, so I'm kind of disappointed in this one in how this is all played out. It's an interesting bug, though, and it is one of those cases of also just trying to be too smart and parsing unexpected types. Yeah, and, and jumping back a little bit, like, what you said is true, like, with it being possible to use it correctly, so maybe that wasn't the best wording on my part, but a lot of people, when they're going to be uh, using your library, they're going to reference your example code, and, like, it, they're not going to change the default. So, yeah, it's it's still very easy to use it incorrectly. Um yeah, no, I, I thought that was kind of cool that it kind of combined different aspects. It, it's a SQL injection, but it's not uh, the kind that you typically see that's really boring. Um, and it kind of combines something that we've been talking about on a few different episodes uh, with that idea of like tricking or uh, causing a bit of a confusion when it comes to the types. Um, it, it's kind of like type confusion in the web. Um, just like the topic we covered a couple weeks ago with like the password reset mechanism where you could pass an array of emails to get a reset link set to both. It's just kind of a case that's um, difficult to account for uh, in some cases. Although in this case, they, they tried to account for it and almost <laughs> worked a little bit too hard, I guess. So Yeah, yeah. and I really made the connection with uh, type confusion. Like I agree, it is confusing the types. My 
perspective on it has been unexpected types rather than confusing the types, but maybe that's not really worth distinguishing. Fair point. I mean, I've, yeah, I keep mentioning it as just, you know, you don't expect that type to be there rather than it's expecting the wrong type. I don't know. It, it's not maybe quite that's, the same that's as not like a, a binary type confusion, yeah. but it's kind of got the same idea. So yeah, it, yeah, the web's version of it almost, and really just scripting languages version of it. This is one of those things that you don't really see this as much when it comes to those statically typed languages. Of course, we are comparing it with type confusion, which you know we often see in like C plus plus, which is more. I mean, they'll use typecasting and be explicit about, but is at least a little bit more statically typed than something like JavaScript or PHP, where you run into this idea of just, hey, this isn't a string, it's an object, all of a sudden. like You kind of run into that that side of it more on the web, more on scripting languages. It is one of the things that can make it hard to work with a scripting language that just accepts any sort of type. Yeah, or automatically interprets it as a type that you weren't expecting. Like, yeah. the thing that comes to mind is the JavaScript sort function. I think that uh, the default sort function will treat values as ASCII input instead of integers, like you might expect. So when you go to sort it, it's like, it doesn't make any sense. There's kind of a meme that's that's been around forever because of it. But um, yeah, things like that, where things being interpreted as a string or as a number when you wouldn't expect it just coming back to bite you yeah it's fairly fairly common in something like javascript all right so uh, we'll get into our uh, last topic before we get into research which is a post by yusuf samuda uh, with more facebook bugs so last year in september we covered the part one post for this on our september 6th episode uh, which covered some issues discovered in canvas which is facebook's game platform um, and after those bugs were fixed he took a look at it again where the code changed a little bit to see if he could find more bugs, and he did. Uh, he discovered three more bugs, which are detailed in this part two post, although only two of them are really detailed, which we'll get into, I guess. Um, before we get into the bugs, though, it'll be helpful, especially for the first bug, to understand a bit of the context um, and some of the background information with the, the setup here, uh, which is detailed a little bit more in the first post. So if you're going to read this post, um, I'd recommend checking out the part one for sure, because um, you will be lacking some details. Um, basically, what you need to know for these bugs is games on Facebook will be served inside of an iframe and will communicate with the parent through post message to do various actions, um, such as prompting the user with a Facebook authorization prompt to get an access token. Um, and then this, the server side, uh, which is like the parent, will then communicate with the arbiter, whatever, to get that access token and, and do the authentication flow. Um, now, the process there is, is fairly involved. There's a little bit more to it than that. Um, but basically how it works is the parent window will send a post request off to the OAuth endpoint, get an access token, and then pass it back to the iframe with an event. Um, and one of the parameters the parent window will take for an OAuth request from the iframe is the redirect URI. Uh, which gets sent as the origin parameter to uh, Facebook's Arbiter, which is like their proxy. Um, and this might sound familiar to some of our listeners who um, have been with us before, because we've covered some other issues as well regarding redirect URI, um, even beyond that September 6th post, I believe. Um, so the so previous I, bug... Sorry, I want to jump ahead. in really quickly. Just mention with the redirect URI, part of the challenge is, is because um, this OAuth is kind of happening via proxy, so their iframe, as Spectre was saying, 
you communicate with the parent frame, which is Facebook, who communicates over and does like the OAuth thing. Um, the origin kind of matters a little bit more. So all of those OAuth applications, you usually have those whitelisted redirect URIs. Oh, um, so like whatever you provide there, and this redirect has to happen. It has to come back to Facebook, not to the actual application. So they'll include kind of like the Facebook URL. And then in the uh, fragment part of the URL, they'll include like what the actual origin of it was. So um, the actual redirect URI um, looks something like, you know, some Facebook, Facebook connect or something. Um, I forget what exactly they'll use, but um, it'll come back to the arbiter fragment start. So your hashtag origin equals and then whatever the frame was so that way when the response comes back it can also send that post message and be like hey this origin is the only one that gets the event nobody else is going to get this or see it um and th that acts as a little bit of a white listing to make sure they're not like oh yeah i'm totally the instagram application give me their oauth code and because they also have to return to facebook arbiter it's okay no they include the uh, origin kind of in there as the fragment of the actual URL coming back, if that makes sense. Yeah, so the previous bug that uh, Yusuf Samuda detailed was one where you could set the redirect URI to the dialogue return arbiter itself, um, even if no origin was specified for the app, which would allow you to basically set your own origin, and with some trickery of swapping out the app ID, um, you could get like the Instagram access token sent to your malicious game application site, for example. Um, and that kind of leads into this first bug, where before he was looking at construction of the request to the arbiter from the parent, um, this time he looked more at the response side of things uh, with the access token. Uh, when looking at the receive message handling code, one thing he noticed was the fix for the issue I just detailed, where a null origin was allowed. Um, now, if there's a null origin, it'll fall back on setting it to this K value, which is set automatically to the origin URL set in the game's application settings. So basically just trying to set an origin if one isn't already set. Well, so, um, so K is what you register. So it, it'll, yeah. um, sorry, it uses D and D will either use the origin or K. Uh, K isn't the default set. Uh, K is um, the one you can register. Yeah, but if there's no if there is a null origin, it'll set it to K. Um, but the problem is that can be changed later, which is kind of an important thing because this opens up a race condition where you can send one register post message with a K value um, that equals a success redirect URL, for example. And while it's waiting for a response there, you could then change K back to an attacker's website. So by kind of racing that K change, uh, K, K change and changing the app ID to something like Instagram, you can then get the same kind of attack as before, uh, get a first-party access token to Instagram or whatever uh, sent to your attacker site. The fix for that was to introduce a sort of locking variable so that you couldn't switch out K in the middle of a uh, request like that. And they also tried to ensure the app ID that was sent from the OAuth endpoint could only be set to the current app ID and not the one provided in the post message from the iframe since it's untrusted. Um, although that... <laughs> That wasn't really sufficient, at least on the first pass, which kind of leads into the other bugs here. Um, the second bug, unfortunately, wasn't really detailed. The post just says that they were able to bypass the app ID restriction and uh, one of the iterations of the locking fixes. Um, they said it was really tricky to hit because it was another race. 
you kind of needed solid timing and other conditions to match up. But yeah, just not really many details, though. Um, the third bug we did get some details on, and it again involved bypassing those mitigations that were introduced, particularly the app ID restriction. And what happened here was there's multiple parameters coming through the post message. Um, the app ID, which is ignored now, um, but also some others, one of which is the encrypted query string, which is another method of providing parameters to the request. Um, now, I guess because Facebook thought they were encrypted or secure, uh, Facebook didn't do any verification of these parameters. And the problem is, even though it's encrypted, it's not really secret because all you have to do is send a request to the Facebook uh, the Facebook OAuth endpoint with an app ID and re redirect URI, and it will provide you an encrypted query string um, in a redirect for you. So you kind of have an Oracle there, like an encryption Oracle to just get your own arbitrary content encrypted. And then you can pass that, um, string. And if you combine that with another issue where you could send parameters with like app ID and redirect URI, um, and treat them as arrays and set the uh, zero element, um, Basically, the server-side parsing would would revoke those parameters, and it would use the ones provided by the encrypted the encrypted query string. So that effectively bypassed their mitigation on the app ID, and again opened the door for an attacker to provide their own. Uh, that third bug was was really interesting to me, just mainly on the setup side of things that Facebook would have this kind of encrypted query string in the first place. I don't really know what the intent is behind it, because like I said, like. It's not like it seems like they're trying to use it as an authentication source. Like, hey, it's like kind of like HMAC saying that, you know, somebody can't encrypt their own thing here, so we can just leave this here and not really validate it. But that's not at all the case in their setup. So, yeah, yeah I, I, I don't really of, know why they have this encrypted query string and use it like this. But yeah, I'd kind of be interested in seeing what um, perhaps the case. Say, the most likely case to me does seem to be that they're using it as an integrity check uh, to prevent tampering with it, so having it encrypted in that sense. Although, I'd be interested to know where this actually kind of appeared, and if there are perhaps other query parameters being included that wouldn't, no, they wouldn't want to have exposed or something like that, perhaps. I don't know. I, I kind of agree with you. I'm not sure what's going on there. I did find the fact they could set the um, array index zero to an empty string, and that would also nullify the original one. And it's just a little bit of an interesting quirk that in this case was really useful and kind of led to them being able to use that encrypted query string. I assume that's necessary because um, if they actually included an app ID, it would prefer the non-encrypted version to the encrypted version. Um, so it's one of those quirks that, like, it's a bug, You, but if you came across that testing an application, it's like, okay, that's weird, but it's not a security issue. Like, there's no real security implication of, oh, you can revoke or, like, have it not parse these arguments. Um, it's only kind of in this larger context that it becomes a real issue, like, you need to chain it with that, which... You know, it's a great bug. I mean, one, to be frank, like, all of these are really cool bugs. I love the JavaScript race condition also. Um, actually, the JavaScript... So this app ID one, or sorry, setting the index zero to, like, an empty string. I've kind of seen that sort of bug before. Um, haven't seen a chain exactly like this before, but I've seen that bug kind of come up. That JavaScript one, though, I, I can't think of seeing anything like that before. 
um, especially on like client side JavaScript. Of course, there aren't a lot of cases where that really matters, um, except this one kind of is like one of those cases. Uh, so I did find that to be quite an interesting bug um, and quite an interesting kind of situation there. I mean, you do kind of need to have that case where you're actively communicating in that way. And like, yeah, it's definitely interesting and specific to Facebook for that. Just an interesting case, I think, to keep in mind that like that even can happen as something to even look for. So I, I mean, maybe if I were looking at it, it will have come to mind, but I can't really think of seeing that sort of issue before. Yeah, like you said, these bugs are are pretty awesome, and the the blog post does a really good job of going through them as well. So yeah, better um, than we do. It's hard to cover sure. a lot of this background, you know, over just the audio and showing the screen. Like, there's a it's a simple bug. Like, I think you summarized it really well. It's just you're swapping okay on the first one there, you're swapping okay kind of between the requests. Like, it's a simple bug. But for it to really come to fruition, you need to understand all the context of how, you know, it's does the ownership checks out where, you know, tries to prevent you from doing things and what the implications are of changing that, which it's hard for us to cover all of that. So I would recommend giving the blog post the read too. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a bit hard to do it justice with the... Yeah. Uh, yeah how much detail is involved with the setup. Yeah. So uh, all in all, these bugs tallied to a uh, $98,250 bounty with uh, 42,000 being paid on the first bug, uh, 12 and a half on the second and just under 44,000 on the third. So yeah, I mean, quite a bit of bounty payout on this post too. So I'm actually a little bit curious on the 43,750 bounty for the third one. That seemed really high to me too. Well, not so much. It seemed high. Well, it seemed high, but the fact that the first one was 42000 like, what was the uh, $1,750 difference is more what oh, I'm curious what about. On. Okay. Yeah, what was the difference between the two? What, what uh, I was thinking about a bit more was the fact that the first bug seemed to be a bit more impactful to me because i mean it's it's an account takeover you can leak the or you can extract the first party access tokens like that whereas the third bug seemed to be more of just uh bypassing a mitigation they introduced so i was a little bit surprised that they paid more for the third bug than they did the first one but maybe there's just some context that i'm missing there um it's totally possible but yeah i found that third payout particularly interesting too yeah i hadn't really I guess thought about that, but I suppose if you because the app the application I think will still end up returning the authorization code to you. So like it is still a full auth bypass on the third one, even though they're just doing the mitigation in a sense. Um because the applicator sorry, the arbiter is still going to see like that app ID, the it's still going to think the response belongs to you, I guess. Um, right, but you'd uh, you'd still need to be able to set the origin to get the message back, right? Or am I mixing something up? I could be. <laughs> it's very possible. Um, I'd have to sit down and actually play with this too. I think fully grok it. Oh, um, yeah, I agree. So it's it's hard to uh, yeah. I, 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 guess I know I'll what just you're saying, asking. That I'm not, totally I'm not sure. sure on that. Okay, fair enough. Um, but yeah, overall, like, regardless, still 
uh, all really cool bugs. And I think the third one, like, I, I love race conditions, so the first bug was cool too, but I think the third one was just the most interesting to me uh, because of the encryption going on and just Facebook's weird treatment of that, so. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like more context on where that normally appears, it would probably make a little bit more sense why they're doing it. Um, it does feel weird, but at the same time, Facebook is, you know, rather complex and... I, I'm sure there's a reason that exists. It does feel like one of those just side door issues where it's like, yeah, you've just got another way of accessing and sending these same parameters that the devs just weren't thinking of. Oh, um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, it's kind of just sitting there ready to be uh, abused in some way. So, yeah, kind of funny. Yeah. Um, sorry, did you have any last minute thoughts there, or do you want to move on to our next topic? No, I think we can move on. All right. So for our last topic, we have a research blog post by uh, Adam Pritchard on the perils of getting the real client IP, especially in setups where proxies are involved. And it basically details some of the common pitfalls and issues that can arise with how people commonly um, get the client IP. And toward the end of the post, kind of, uh, you know, how to do it correctly uh, sort of thing. So Z, I'll, uh, I'll hand this one off to you. Yeah, this is um, kind of jokes about right at the st- start here but this post ended up being incredibly long crosses that out comprehensive you know it's a very comprehensive post covers a lot of it and we're not going to cover all the details in here give it a read or bookmark it and kind of refer back to it um especially in like a modern setup where you have like all of these middleware and different like load balancers and everything just kind of sitting in between the internet, and the actual application server. Figuring out what the actual client IP is a little bit tricky, and doing that in a generic way, there are a lot of pitfalls that you can kind of fall into with it. And that's kind of what he ends up covering throughout a lot of this post, is how do you actually do this? Um, And pointing out a lot of ways where, even if you think you're doing it right you might still be doing it wrong. So one of the more interesting ones that I actually learned a little bit from was this uh, multiple headers attack. So of course, having multiple headers, multiple of the same header, I didn't realize that the spec actually included this, which is you can actually have headers that are occurring multiple times if the value of it is supposed to be like a comma separated list. Uh, Then, you know, including it multiple times you can kind of generate what the proper value would be uh, based off the fact that, you know, appending is always the right answer in that case, basically. Um, What's interesting is that Go has, and this is just an example, other languages are similar, uh, has multiple ways that you can get a header's value. And using get, which is generally what I'd have ended up using, only returns the first header. Um, and in the case of like X44, if you're going to append a value to it, you might do that by adding a second version of the header or just adding the second header with the new IP. Um, and in that case, when you get it, you get the first one. That's going to be a user controlled value or potentially user controlled, depending on how everything's working and appending and doing its thing um, versus using like value or accessing the map directly. So I thought that was just kind of one of the interesting places where you can have an attack. And they do fine for a lot of these uh, 
they do find places where it was vulnerable, like IP parsing and like a rate limiter middleware or. Uh, yeah, I think that was the case with this Go Chi middleware. Um, some of the other issues, uh, I'll just run through kind of what all of them were quickly uh, that they talk about. One is just headers are kind of untrustworthy in general. Users can't provide this unless the proxy strips the original values. Uh, this is specific to the uh, exported for header, unless the proxy strips the original value and just depends. So you have to kind of keep that in mind because users can't even include things in exported for, which is usual, which is one of the common headers that will be parsed for looking for the IP. Uh, you can provide something that isn't even a IP and just see how it deals with that. I mean, technically it could be a hoax name, could be a SQL injection there. Like, there's a lot of things you can provide there. I was just talking a bit about multiple headers, um, having private private IPs in there. Um, the spec only mentions comma separated lists in the headers, but you know, does that? What about a comma and a space? Uh, they did actually find that one application was splitting on comma space rather than just the comma. Uh, seems like a more think, sane uh, thing. Go ahead. I think even the HTTP like RFC examples or whatever, use comma space as well, um, even though it's not really um, required by the spec. So that's, it seems comma space is like the more common one almost, but well, yeah, I, it seems to be kind of a weird source for a desync, so. Yeah, I'm not sure if I say it's more common in the code, uh, because they did actually mention that most things were splitting just on the comma, but they did find one that was splitting on comma space. Um, a more sane way of doing that split would be split on comma and trim the results. That way, if there is a space, you deal with it. If there isn't a space, you deal with it. I think that's what they said most libraries would do, was the yeah. the uh, stripping. Um, but yeah, where that's not required by the specification, you know, it's kind of uh, rolling dice, I guess. Whenever you use a library that does that, if it's going to do that or not, it's it's up to however the developers are feeling about it. Yeah, is that something you're going to remember to check your library for to see how it handles it? Probably not, but an attacker might. Um, some of the other ones, unencrypted data, they call it just fact if you're not using HTTPS, or if you're not using HTTPS between um, whatever your like content distribution network or load balancer or something and the application server, you could also potentially have an attack there. That depends a ton on what the setup looks like, so... Maybe, maybe not, but just things being unencrypted, anybody can kind of jump in there and modify things in flight. And also just the other headers involved. Um, and this is kind of a problem when it comes to generic frameworks that are trying to handle it. Um, Nginx has X client IP, Cloudflare sends like this true client IP. Um, and one of them, I, I want to say it was the Fastly one, but... Maybe I shouldn't be too confident in saying that. Might have been... Uh, I'm just reading up. Yeah, so by default here, Fastly Client IP. Um, Basically, if... I have to read this. So I, what I don't want to accidentally say, oh yeah, Fastly is vulnerable or was vulnerable to this, and they're not. One of these services, what they did was they would include the... If the victim or sorry if the attacker actually sent in one of these 
IPs, like the true client IP or Fastly client IP, if they sent that in, they would just pass it right along. So a client could spoof it or they would include it. So it's basically entirely not trustworthy. Because if somebody wants to spoof it, yeah, go ahead. They'll just pass it along. If they don't want to spoof it and, you know, they don't provide it, then it's trustworthy. So you have no way of knowing what, what the actual case was. So it's just entirely untrustworthy. It just seemed like a really weird approach to take on it. Um, I don't remember which service that was that they found that issue on, but that is a default just seems kind of insane. But at the same time, like, you know, these, because there's no real standard way of doing that, you have all these different headers. You know, if your middleware is trying to be friendly to all these different deployments, oh, it looks like, oh, there's a true client IP here. This must have come from Cloudflare and just trusting it when actually it's running behind like Nginx. And X client IP is what it would provide, and this true client IP can't be trusted. Um, there's just all these different ways you can kind of have these issues come up. And like I said, they do detail some actual case studies of like how you should parse this out, give you a bit more of a proper algorithm on determining it. Um, they detail a lot of that. I just kind of covered the attacks, and that's most of the detail I'm going to go into. It's a really solid post. Like the, It is a harder problem than you would expect in terms of how you parse everything. If you're just writing it for your single setup, it's maybe a little bit easier, but as soon as you try and get a little bit generic, there's so many issues that can come into it, and I really appreciate this post for just laying it all out. None of these are necessarily new or really novel attacks, but they are things that can absolutely present because you don't know what or how to trust anything basically really good post and just a tougher problem i think than you would expect because you can't just use what the remote ip address was because of modern setups really and i say modern it's i mean reverse proxies and stuff have been used for quite a long time so it's not not a new problem um but it's just so getting more complex it's kind of this interesting um, problem that's the reverse of what you would typically see. So like in a lot of different applications or whatever, you kind of have this concept of a chain of trust. So at the top, you have uh, the most trusted thing. And then at the bottom, you have like untrusted input and you kind of have these stages in between um, where where with proxying, you have to rely on data from the last step in the chain. Um, it's kind of the reverse where the source of the start, like the flow is where you have untrusted data coming in. So data can be uh, put in at the start of the header and corrupt the entire chain going forward. Um, and that's really difficult to account for when you're, when you have like a modern setup with different servers and middleware in between. So. Yeah. yeah and, um, Rudamal asks in chat here, can a local host name contain a space? Um, I don't think so, or not directly, although I believe because you've got punny codes, uh, which is kind of like the encoding, it's like, I want to say XN dash dash numbers to like encode characters. So like, it's not a space, but you can have something that looks like a space. Um, and that would be how you'd introduce it, but I don't think you can actually use the space character as, like, the proper part. Um, that would be something that you need, uh, uh, have encoded somehow. 
That would be a pretty insane host name, though. <laughs> so, well, do you remember yeah. a long time ago we covered uh, that cat? It was like Angry Cat. That's what the vulnerability was. Or Thangry. Was it Thangry Cat? It was something like that, but the URL was just three cat emojis. <laughs> oh, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, Unfortunately, I, I, I actually URL. checked, and I think that domain is now down, but that was uh, my favorite named vol on the website just because of the emojis in it. So you can do it, and browsers kind of parse it, but behind the scenes, it is encoded. Um, but you can include spaces in it if you want to, um, in the header, I mean, because it's a header. You can include whatever you want. It's up to the application to actually parse it. Yeah, honestly, great post. It is kind of a shout-out here. I did run through some of it. They talk about how some of these services actually do the parsing, which, you know, calling out when they do something weird or wrong. But it's really going to depend on the final application in terms of how you can exploit it. Oh, I, but I really solid post. Back. I mean, a I lot of effort. I jump back a little bit. This. All right, go ahead. Yeah, I did want to jump back a little bit to when you were talking about Fastly and uh, which one it was where it would do kind of that weird thing and trust the uh, client IP header. So it was Fastly because uh, there's a little snippet here from the documentation uh, which says that the Fastly client IP value is not protected from modification at the edge of the Fastly network. So if a client sets this header themselves, we will use it. Uh, if you want to prevent this, you need to do some additional configuration. So... Yeah, I don't know why they would have it like that. You would think you would want it secure by default. And then uh, if you, for some reason, wanted to take the uh, the user-provided header at base value, then you would have to configure it to do so. But instead, it goes the other way for whatever yeah, reason. Yeah, I mean, I, I was kind of being careful there because I didn't want to be too confident and be like, Fastly has this vulnerability. And, oh, it was actually something else. And like just trash-talking how they do that. But yeah, it... Especially it, it, I like mean, the quote is right there, though, to be fair. Like, yeah, they, no, with the quote there, the now I remember it definitely was fastly that I was remembering. Uh, but I wasn't as confident as I was talking through this. Oh, uh, that's it, especially because this is fastly client IP and not like just X client IP or something that's a little bit more generic. So, oh, you have some other fronting server that provides the IP because that is a potential case, something else that's yet in front of fastly. Uh, that ends up providing the actual IP and passing it through. That does feel like something that should be configured than to pass through a trusted header rather than just trusting Fastly client IP. Like it just, it ends up defeating the purpose of Fastly client IP by default. Um, because yeah, it's very spoofable. But yeah, um, with that kind of summarized there, like Z said, this is kind of a post that I feel like will be useful to have just bookmarked and be able to reference back to. There is a lot there to, you know, try to sit down and read in, in one go. Uh, it's mostly something where it's like, if you have a specific attack in mind or you want to reference it, you can just kind of jump to that section, jump back to this post, uh, which, yeah, I, th I think this post is really good for that. Um, but yeah, I don't I'll think it's something you have to read it in its entirety, I guess. I'll kind of mention here, there aren't a lot of cases where I think you should do security by IP in general. Um, they do call rate limiters, which is, I think, one of the few sane reasons to be doing anything based off of IP. But I can remember there's one application 
that um they end up trusting just X44, but um they basically had it where like they'd have this administrative panel if you were on local host. And then by setting X44 to local host, um you got access to the admin panel basically. It it was kind of restricted. It was like their the chat box in their application or something. It it wasn't the full application, but there aren't a lot of reasons to just restrict things down based off of the IP like that in general. Like, I would avoid that as, like, a first step and have it just based off a user, like, not implicitly trusting localhost any any different than anywhere else or other IPs, but people do it. It definitely happens. So there are, There is some attack surface for it. Um, I think rate limiting is kind of a big one, though, because kind of makes sense to do some rate limiting based off of IP. It, this was some years ago, so, you know, take take it with that in mind. But I remember seeing some websites where, uh, or some setups where they would have, like, PHP my admin, which I don't even know if people use that anymore. <laughs> it feels like a relic from the past, but they would have PHP my admin set up, which uh, is, like, you know, a front-end database uh, thing. And they would gate it off behind localhost like that or or gate it off to like even worse like public ip addresses that the developers had or whatever and it was like wow this is a really bad idea well so <laughs> even running, then it was like, a bad idea because you can run a web application on the local host so that it's not on like the broadcast ip and not accessible no like no, that, no, but... no i i meant they made it accessible <laughs> so, yeah like yeah. You'd have to really add some some extra checks to do that. Like, yeah, that that seems a little bit insane. Like, it's just such a huge risk to do that too. To make, yeah, I mean, I kind of take that zero trust route. Just do the authentication on everybody. Don't have extra trust because they're inside the network. But that's just me, I guess. <laughs> But yeah, uh, unless you have any other last-minute thoughts you want to bring up, I guess we'll go ahead and wrap up the show. No, I think we're good. All right, cool. So that's all the topics we have for today. Uh, thank you to everyone who tuned in. As per usual, the VOD will be up on YouTube and Spotify, as well as other platforms tomorrow, um, and it will be up on Twitch immediately. Check out our Discord or follow us on Twitter for when we go live and for discussion. Uh, links for those are on the site or in the chat. Uh, tomorrow we'll be back with a binary episode at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, and we'll see you then.